So thank you, uh, Edward, for joining me in lockdown. Um, yes. You're by the sea. I'm in a cupboard. That's, <laughs> that's how things are. So tell me about your background and what it was that made you decide to become an actor and how you went about it. Uh, it was a friend of mine. Uh, I uh, come from Bradford and uh, we were in nursery together, then we were in the infants together, then we were in primary school together, then we were in grammar school together and he joined the boys brigade uh, and he was a drummer and he, when we were at the grammar school, he got invited, they needed uh, drumming in, I think it was a Shakespeare at Bradford Civic Playhouse, which is a well-known amateur playhouse. They used to do a play once a month. Um, and he went, I think it was much ado about nothing actually. Anyway, he then said that they were doing as a celebratory production, uh, a production of King Lear with Peter Jews. I don't know if you remember Peter Jews. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But he was a Bradford boy. Uh, and there is quite a strong history of people being in the theatre and film coming from Bradford. Um, I don't know whether it was. <laughs> Bradford itself, because it was so mucky and dirty, because it's the heavy end of the wool, or it was at that time, the heavy end of the woolen industry. You know, the raw wool used to come into Bradford from Australia and New Zealand and Argentina uh, in these great big bales. And so wool sorting in Bradford was uh, uh, one of the big main stays of Bradford woolen industry was wool sorting. You could have a good career as a wool sorter. And in fact, my auntie was a burler and mender and my grandma was a burler and mender. And that's when they have great rolls of cloth, it's the women who invisibly mend any uh, tears or any weaknesses in that cloth. So you can't see it. So it's a very, that's another highly skilled job. And so, Burning uh, and mending sheds always had a lot of sunlight. They had a lot of sky uh, skylights, and they were usually at the top of the, the mill, so they could let this sunlight flood in. Anyway, I'm digressing. He did this production of, and then he said they need somebody to come down and play Cordelia's army in Peter Jews's King Lear, and that's how it started. I had no intention of becoming an actor, and no thoughts of becoming an actor. But Barry Hansen, who became a BBC producer, is responsible for me actually finishing up at Bradford Civic Playhouse and then going on um, to Rose Bruford Training College, which as it was in those days, uh, and doing three years there and progressing into the business. Right. So, because uh, I've got a 12th night at the Royal Court, was that... Was that's not the one you were talking about? That, that uh, with with no, no, no. That's when I had so become. That was after you. That was after you'd become an official thespian. Yes, Bill Gaskell, who also incidentally comes from Bradford, uh, wanted a permanent company at the Royal Court, but he couldn't afford to have a permanent company. So what happened was a group of young actors like me signed up, uh, and they did. Sunday night productions, 
uh, where you were paid two pounds if you turned up. That was without set, without decor. And they were all new plays. Uh, or there was what has now become the theatre upstairs was just a bar and you could all drinks were half a crown and they used to do plays up there. So if you weren't in the main house, you could be on a Sunday evening or you could be up. So I was employed at the Royal Court for roughly, I think, two years on a kind of ad hoc basis of uh, trying to be a permanent company, but, you know, not being. Well, I've, I've leapt a little because you, you, you mentioned Rose Brief and it's in, very interesting because I think, you know, the, the back end of the 60s, there's, there's an interesting shift, isn't there? And I wonder how being a, in, you know, in inverted commas for want of a term, a northern actor, you know, was the pressure to, you know, lose the accent or, or was it getting to the point where actually that was seen as an advantage because of the more sort of kitchen sink and the authenticity? It was a funny shift, wasn't it, in terms of... But that's the point it was indeed. Theatre. Yes, and because it was the Rose Bruford Training College of Speech and Drama, uh, you did get a teaching qualification at the end, but one of the uh, stipulations was that you spoke standard English. And Rose Bruford, who was running the college at that time, because it was trendy, she invited suddenly actors from the North to come to her college but I don't think she was very totally happy about it because they were they didn't speak properly they were quite rough and ready they said what they thought and uh, it didn't sit very well with her so I have three quite painful years at Rose Bruford where I was hauled before at every turn to say you said you said bus in the common room and not bus and uh, it was noted and it had been, you know, and all the Northern lads and lasses were all lined up down the stairs to her office every term. And it never changed for three years. Wow. <laughs> so it didn't, sit, it didn't sit nicely with Rose Bruford at all. These Northern actors were, they, they shouldn't really be actors. And, and yet more and more now that sort of uh, authenticity is seen as key. And actually it's... Uh, oh, absolutely. Advantage, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. And the more the merrier. And, you know, Shakespeare springs to life suddenly when you put an accent on it. So, you know, the proof is in the eating, you know. And um, let's let's get Doctor Who out of the way, because I watched it the other day. And uh, and I think I'm sure I once met the actor Roger Walker in a pub. Is he a mate of yours? He is. Yes, he was at Rose Bruford. (laughs) <laughs> and, and, and I remember, and, and you came up somehow, and oh, he was brilliant in a Doctor Who, and Roger said, I think Edward says that it's the only time he's ever won an award. Is that, is that true, that, you, that the, for being best villain? Uh, in- I was voted the best villain of the season. <laughs> which is... Uh, which is- I've I still got it framed somewhere. Oh, brilliant. So I was uh, delighted. <laughs> I remember at the time the director said that there was a sort of... Um, there was a you, you had a sort of granite-like quality that he liked. So was that was that was that just an offer that came in? Did you have to go and see him? How did the part come about? I can't remember. I have to be honest. I can't remember what happened. I'm sure I went to see him, but uh, in those days it was all done in studio. Mm. Uh, so there were wobbly sets <laughs> and lots of polystyrene. Uh, and I remember I, uh, at the end, uh, the, the prop guys, they had to make a, a plastic, not a plastic, a wax 
head, which uh, they then put uh, paint strippers on, you know, the uh, red hot, so that it gently melted at the end. Uh, and I remember it was a wonderful effect at the time. Uh, and they did get quite a few letters saying that it was a bit too strong because it, it just, I just suddenly, uh, I lived at minus, I don't know how many degrees and uh, they opened the window and the sun hit my face and I started to melt and you visibly saw it. It was a terrific effect. Uh, and uh, it was, there were just there were there were really terrific ideas I thought about the uh, that particular program and the 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 boys the prop boys had a ball. If I put if I took my gloves off, it meant that you uh, that was it. And they put pipes down my sleeves. I remember, and they could let steam come out as I clasped somebody's head, and they gently made wonderful stuff. Uh, I, I loved it. It is. It's a brilliant effect. I was I was watching it the other day, and I think it's great. And you're brilliant in it. You've got you do you do a great line in Cold Villainy, and um, but I and I was curious. And I'm a massive Doctor Who fan, but the idea of doing a whole ice planet in a small BBC studio, I'm I'm torn between whether that's hugely ambitious or a massive folly. Is is the is it is it? Do you think do you think? Because uh, my feeling is that we go we're so keen on realism now that everything has to be 100% convincing, whereas that is much more the sort of stage tradition, isn't it? Where you go, well, look, we know it's not a nice planet, but we're, we're hoping to do it well enough that you'll just go with us. And it's sort of trusting the audience, which we almost don't do on television now. There's no artifice allowed in a way. It's, it's, the, old, it's the old standard Shakespeare thing. If, if or, you know, the, the old uh, plays that they used to, the Everyman plays, if you come on and say, I am God, the audience say, accept that. You might be Phil from down the road, but as soon as you say, I am God, they say, okay, we'll buy that. Go on, keep going. And you then let them use their imaginations and you can say, well, this is a flimsy set. You can see it's wobbling as we walk across it, but we'll believe in it to allow you to believe in it. And of course they, they say, yeah, we'll believe in it. That's great. I love that idea. We'll come along with you. And so if you... Are 100% behind it. If you at any time send it up or think that it's stupid, it doesn't work. But if you believe in it, you allow the audience to believe in it. Well, it's, it's Henry V, is it? Think when we speak of ice planets that you see them. Uh, Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, uh, but there's also, uh, without sending it up, there's, there's humour because you've got Sylvester McCoy uh, in his first year as the Doctor, who's got that sort of natural humour that comes through. How was how was how was it working with Sylvester, who's a bit of a force of nature, isn't he, of, of invention? And... Uh, Sylvester and I had known each other before, right? Which was either a plus or a minus, depending. We had a scene at the end where the whole three episodes were explained. And we started laughing one day, and it was a struggle from then on. Um, but he, he was wonderful. And because I'd known him before, we, we really did struggle. And even the, the director caught it, and we were all in tears. But we, we did it. But it was, it was some of the lines that Sylvester had were, your son turned supernova. <laughs> I remember that. Because I went, oh, <laughs> that set us off 
and uh, he had other lines. And you know what it's like at the end of uh, three episodes where you, it's the exposition and you're explaining what's going on. And it's all, they're always difficult scenes anyway, because uh, you, you've got to be serious. You've got to, uh, and he was twinkling away. And it was, uh, it was hysterical, really. <laughs> and and have, have you kept up with Doctor Because you were with it towards the end of its... Uh its incarnation on, on, on television. It was sort of, uh, although you were in the 150th story, which is quite an accolade, but it had it only got a couple of years left to go on the screen. Did, was there a feeling that, that you were in a show? Because I, I know the people that made it said that they felt they were sort of neglected by the BBC. Um, did, did you feel under that sort of, was the sort of pressure? No, I don't think so. I mean, I think it was just an evolving thing and it, it had its own natural... Uh, that people accepted that you would get a new Doctor Who. I mean, I think there was an acceptance that studio uh, work was coming to an end. Mm. And uh, all those vast studios that there were at the, at the BBC, which were wonderful in many respects, uh, because you had all variety, you had sitcoms, you had... And it was a, a wonderful time. The, like the word North... Acton rehearsal rooms that was seven floors where everything that was at the BBC rehearsed. So, there, and there were, I think there were three rehearsal spaces on each floor. And I remember going up in, in the lift one day with, and I thought, oh, there's an exquisite smell. There's a, a, a lady in the corner. We went up together and I opened the lift for her. And then I suddenly realized it was Shirley Bassey. Uh, <laughs> And that happened all the time at North Acton, you know, Morecambe and Wise, the two Ronnies, as well as all these serious dramas that were being produced. And it, but there was, a, and it has all come to an end, but it was, I suppose, a, a unique time at the BBC. Now, do you think um, it had to end or, and do you, I mean, because I think sometimes we can look back with, with, rose-tinted spectacles I certainly do and go oh god those were the times to be doing it but we let's face it we do produce good telly now um was it was it a natural process do you think do you think things had to move on and be done differently or do you hearken for that those times when it was all in one place the BBC produced stuff you had rehearsals it wasn't just rehearse record you know it's a, if you showed it to a young actor now that world of 1987 at the BBC that they, they would find it barely recognizable would they they would, they would find it better. But, but, but what happened in those days, I think for, in many respects, it's a lot, lot better now and a much, so it should be. But the thing that it had in those days was an individuality, uh, an allowance to failure, I think, uh, and which we, you can't have these days. It's gotta be, everything has gotta be a success. Uh, everything's got hit the right uh, marketing so that if you're not hitting a certain age group like you know you, you may appeal to over 60s or you may appeal to under 18s but there are certain things that you you must hit uh, uh, certain standards that those and but in those days there were things that were produced like I'm, there is coming up next week <laughs> plugging my own show here but there's the original black stuff yeah. I don't know if you remember that. It was yeah, by yeah. Alan Bleasdale. And it was a film that was made. Uh, uh, and I was in it because I'd been doing uh, 
and it was Alan's first TV piece. I'd been in a lot of his plays up, uh, around and about, but he said, I've got my first telly, and it was called The Black Stuff. And we shot it, and we filmed it, and we went up to Middlesbrough to do it, and I thought it was wonderful. It was wonderful writing. And you know when you get a script, and, you, uh, and that doesn't happen, happen so much as it used to, that you get a script and you think, I've got to be in this. I've just got to be in this. Don't matter what it is, I need to be in this. And, and then it didn't come out. It didn't come out for, I think, two and a half years. And I rang him up and said, Alan, what's happened to this telly? Your first telly, a big break for you. He said, BBC don't like it. They're not going to put it out. And I said, no, no, that's, you know. Eventually it came out. And of course, it led on to the series, which became a huge, huge hit. Yeah. But no, I mean, those, and the, the, you were constantly getting scripts which were exciting, which were on the edge, which were frightening. You were wondering whether you could pull it off or not. And, and there was the allowance that you could fail. Yeah. Which now I don't think there is. Plus, I find scripts are. In those days, there was less interference in the scripts. Now you have huge departments, huge scripts departments. Everyone has to have a say, put their oar into a script. And often it changes from the writer's original idea and it becomes something else, which is not as powerful or as clear or as unique as the original script. And all writers that I speak to tell me this that it, it gets watered down and watered down and watered down because now there are so many controls. So you can't do this, you can't do that. We must do this, we must have that. And the script gets shredded. And I think that's a great shame. And writers get very disillusioned about it. Well, and, and you, you know, you were there doing, um, as well as black stuff, you, did, you were in uh, the play for Day of Com Comedians as well, Trevor Griffiths. So another sort of authentic... Um, you know, regional voices coming through in... in sure. In there. But you hadn't been in the stage version of that, had you? So how did... No, I hadn't. That, how did that come about? That uh... Uh, Well, another friend of mine, Dave Hill, who uh, mm. had been playing that part originally, for some reason, he couldn't do the, the play for today. And I was in, at the Bush Theatre, doing a play called Pillion by Paul Copley, which was one of his first or second plays uh, and I remember them coming to see me in it and then offering me the part in, in Comedians but there were, there were, I remember it, <laughs> it was the first time really that because um, there was a joke in it because it was about laughter and, uh, and about what makes us laugh what, human beings are one of the few creatures on earth that, that laugh why how what makes us laugh what is it that generates this and there was a joke in it which uh, finished up and it had fuck as one of the words and i remember there being a great they said you can't say it you can't say that word can you put can you substitute it with something else well, if you heard the joke it was intrinsic to the joke and it wouldn't work with any other word and it became a standoff as to whether, because Trevor Griffiths said, no, you bought the play, you bought the play as it stood. I'm not changing it. You've got to do it as it is. 
And there was some, you know, is it going to go? Will it go? Will it, you know, are they going to? But it had been, we'd done it in the studio. And uh, yes, it did, it did go out, but it was controversial. Yeah. Now, well, that begs the question, and as somebody that's been in a lot of that, that sort of groundbreaking stuff, can it, does, tele, can television change society, us? Is it important that it does? Should it just be the, idiot, the idiot's lantern providing entertainment or escapism, or is it part of the national conversation? I think it's vital, absolutely vital. Uh, art must ask questions, it must raise problems, it must make you think, it must make you, you know, go to bed and if you hate it, you know, get annoyed about it. But it, it, it's Cathy come home and all those kind of, they changed policies uh, and they made people think. And, and we've got to allow that in society, allow uh, a means by which we can look at ourselves and see what we're doing wrong and see what is not working. Otherwise, we just accept everything. And we've got to be a questioning, especially now. We've got to question what's going on and ask those questions meaningfully and change policy if necessary. I think it's that important. So when you broke into telly, I've got 1967 as your first telly, was, was, it's a relatively fledgling medium then. Um, and, and I know it was one that was held in some disdain by the acting profession early on, you know, in, certainly in the 50s. Um, a lot of stage actors and film actors wouldn't touch it. Um, was it something as an actor that you were conscious you wanted to break into or was it not possible to have such a career plan and you just sort of went, went wherever it was dictated? Did you have an eye on telly? Very much have an eye on telly. But uh, again, you, uh, you are very much at the whim of the business and you go where you can. But I mean, uh, I, I've always been interested in doing new plays, be they on television or be they in the theatre, and new work. And there was a lot of new interesting stuff coming on to television that worked only in that medium. Uh, and that's what you wanted to be part of. Uh, as well as doing new plays in the theatre. The theatre's my first love, I think, because that the other element, which is, is the audience, which changes a play, makes a play, shapes a play, uh, which is very exciting. Um, but to do stuff on the edge, on television, uh, which is important, which you know is going to make a difference, is important, I think, interests me excites me, gets me going, wondering why did I become an actor? Because, I, you know, it's good stuff. I want to be in it. And, and you've been in good stuff and you've worked with good people. You worked with Lindsay Anderson on stage and on, on film. Uh, yes. How, how was that? Interesting direction. Uh, the first thing I did with Lindsay was at the Royal Court, uh, the Changing Room. The Changing Room, yeah. Uh, by David Storey. And, uh, which was marvellous. It was a wonderful, I, I, a stupendous cast, 22 of us uh, on the small Royal Court stage. Um, and we did actually go out and uh, play games of rugby and sit in a big bath and uh, Lindsay all the way through. Uh, it was wonderful because he was very much into rugby league and uh, filmed a lot of uh, rugby league. Uh, and he was also famous for documentary stuff as well, was Lindsay. And David's story was a new, important 
well, is a very important British writer. One of his novels, wonderful novels, um, This Sporting Life with Richard Harris and those great films that, that Lindsay did. Uh, and so it was, nothing much happened in the play. It was just about how a group of men meld themselves into a team. So they come in as individuals and they strip off their clothes. They put on the uniform, which is the rugby league. They become a team. They work as a unit. Uh, it's cold winters, you know, in wherever it was, Featherstone, Bramley, Batley. It's hard. It's a hard game. It's gritty. It's rough. Uh, but Lindsay had a wonderful knack of orchestrating and choreographing 22 people on stage. And it was mesmerizing because everyone was doing different things all the way through. So he worked out, you know, somebody comes in straight away, strips off, sits there naked. Somebody else comes in, doesn't move, just gets out a paper, starts reading it. It's how all those individuals suddenly become this unit. And then at the end of the play, how they go back to being individuals again and go off into the night. Uh, lovely play. Now, not much happens in it, it's, it's, but it's mesmerizing when you see it done properly. And Lindsay had that, that eye where he could see where the focus was on the stage all the time and have something interesting going on. So it was a play to watch as well as listen to. It's a hell of a cast, that change room. Alan Armstrong, David Dacre, Michael Elphick, Edward Judd, Brian Glover. I mean, there's, uh, there's some names to conjure there. Um... It was, and we had an absolute ball doing it. And we were transferred to the West End and its demise was the minor strike, three-day week, because we had a um, generator. And of course, it lost a lot of that eye, that detail, that wonderful choreography that Lindsay, it was flat lighting. It was two, you know, Carl headlamps, either to begin with or to finish. But also uh, the main thing of the play as well, there was a, 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 a full stage bath at the back. It was a small swimming pool where there was hot water. So when we all ran on naked with pink bums, because we've been sitting in this hot water, uh, and that was part of the play. It was that detail that made it work. And then because of the three-day week, they scrapped the swimming pool. And it wasn't the same. Wasn't the same. But it would be wrong to sort of typecast you as the sort of gritty, you know, forefront of just the sort of gritty northern kitchen sink, because you've done loads of classical stuff as well. You've done the RSC and the, and the Globe. What's the, uh, what's the key to the variety? Has this been conscious? How can, how can you be conscious in such a, uh, a, an uncertain career? I think you've got to take every opportunity that comes your way, never close down, never close your mind to anything. Be open, uh, be receptive, enjoy the work that you do. I mean, the great thing about the globe is that you have, what is it, 1,700 people uh, in that space, and you can see every one of them. And you have to look them in the eye. If you don't look them in the eye, you're putting up a fourth wall. So um, for some people, it's quite intimidating to walk out and to be able to see everyone and to see them, you know, being bored, being fed up, 
making uh, road signs at you. Uh, all kinds of things go on, but it's 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 a challenge, and uh, but it's very exciting when it works, because you've got seventeen hundred people in the middle of London, and you can hear it. You know, it's so quiet and it's so it's it's wonderful, wonderful feeling to be have that in the palm of your hand. That that it's it's a lovely feeling, but it, as I say, you have to take them on. You've got to, you've got to, if you're, if you're doing a, a soliloquy, you've got to look at somebody and look them in the eye and speak to them. And if you don't, it looks like you're putting up a fourth wall and they, they think, oh, he, you know, he won't look at me. And it is, it is, it's tricky, but it's so good. It's a bit more like stand-up in that way. Funny, I do, I'm a stand-up and, and, but funny enough, when I do, you know, acting with a lot of actors on radio or whatever, and they find out that I do stand-up, it's always actors more than anybody that seem to go, oh boy, God, I couldn't do that. But uh, as though there's, there's no similarity between the two, but of course, they're not that far removed from each other. And Absolutely it sounds, sounds like when you're at the Globe, they're almost identical. Yes, yes, indeed, yeah. And uh, Mark Rylance was very good that he... When he first started, he, um, he got the, the company to go on stage before the play starts, just to break that barrier and speak to the audience and say, hello, where have you come from? You know, tricky journey. Oh, you're from America. Oh, that's all right. All right. Then you start the play and you've already broken that. And uh, you have a, re a relationship. See, I would find that harder than the acting because it can acting, be. I feel you have a barrier. I once had to do a play at the Royal Exchange and they wanted me to go out before the play and mingle with the audience in costume and chat to them. And I found that much harder than just going on stage and because you can sort of lose yourself because you're not, it's, it's that unsolicited, you, you know, it's the fear of rejection almost, isn't it? You might yes. say hello to somebody and then ignore you yeah. or tell you to go away. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> So what about, um, is there any um, uh, police history in your family? Because you seem to have played a lot of senior police officers in your time. And what's that all about? None whatsoever. <laughs> uh, although my name is Peel and Sir Robert yes. Peel's family, obvious, didn't he? And uh, he has got a statue in Bradford, actually, Sir Robert Peel in Foster Square. Uh, so he's there. maybe there's some connection, but there's none that I know of. It's something to do with height, uh, and it's something to do... Mind you, I have played an equal number of crooks. So th th there's a correlation between the police and the crooks. I mean, you've got to, you've got to have... be one to catch the other. Yeah, yeah. Well, the one... I mean, the one that I think um, certainly anybody of my generation will re remember with great fondness, because it was a show that was extremely successful, was, was Juliet Bravo. Uh, in which you were the sort of senior policeman and sort of romantic interest of uh, of, of the main character. Ju is Juliet Bravo a show you remember fondly? Because it was uh, uh, it is. hugely successful. It was, and uh, it, it, again, it was uh, it was uh, all shot round Burnley, Rotten Stall, Nelson, all around there. Uh, a lovely part of the world, and I remember seeing the very first ones. Uh, they were almost like individual place for today when it first started i don't think they'd actually worked out what it was juliet bravo and during that first series they were in the process of doing that so they all became like little what was it 45 minutes i think 45 minute place for today 
uh, and, and fascinating. It always seemed to be raining. It was very grey and, and in those days, uh, but it was it was a yeah. It it was the start of I suppose realism in television in in uh, you know gritty kitchen sink type situations. But it's amazing then to see the change when you come in as a as another senior police officer. In, a, in an entirely different but northern-based show, when you come into uh, uh, Cracker, which again was another show that seemed like a breath of fresh air and so authentic and uh, a way that we'd sort of never seen pr police procedural before. And that had a real sort of dark energy. But again, it's new writing, Jimmy McGovern. Um, so um, how, how is it coming into to, to a show like Cracker? Again, it was one of those scripts that... that was sent to me which I just thought this is brilliant stuff I've got to be in this it, it, it's the quality of the writing was so exciting uh, and occasionally you get that where, where it's superb writing and you just think oh I give my eye teeth to be in this and and it was uh, again it was it was shot all around Manchester uh, a lovely series to be part of um, and, and being, and uh, you know, it, it's still repeated non-stop. And that's always a good mark of, of good television is how often it is repeated and where it is repeated. And it seems to be repeated continually. When you've had so m many credits, it's very easy for me to just come and cherry pick a couple. Are there any, any jobs that uh, I haven't mentioned to you that, that, that stick out to you as being either really important or really that you had a really good time on or that you think you did, did a particularly good job of? Oh, I remember thinking, I did while I was at the Royal Court very early in the 60s, I did a, um, I was part of the D.H. Lawrence trilogy, which did which Peter Gill directed. And it was Collier's Friday Night, The Daughter-in-Law and The Widowing of Mrs. Holroyd. Plays that had been kind of not shown, really. Uh, and Peter Gill decided to do this season of these three plays in repertoire, which was quite a bold thing to do at that time at the Royal Court. We were always very short of money at the Royal Court. But they stayed and have still stayed with me all the way through. And they stayed with me because Peter was a wonderful director, but he was also, it was about a particular time in British history and it was about miners in Nottingham. And I remember I took over from an actor called Victor Henry. I don't know if you remember Victor Henry in The Daughter-in-Law. And there was one section in that where uh, Joe comes around to see his brother, who's married to Minnie, who's the daughter-in-law, to tell him that he's had a child by somebody else. And it's a kind of showstopper. And Minnie goes out because they have an argument and he's left with Luther. And all Luther does is have a strip wash in... Uh, the kitchen area and I was on a rocking chair and they had uh, a pea, they, they, they had some Yorkshire pudding for their meal and I put some jam on some Yorkshire pudding and I sat in this rocking chair eating this jam 
and the audience were mesmerized while this chap had a strip wash. And it sums up, because the detail was so wonderful and the sets and the costumes were so remarkable, uh, I, it's, it's never left me. And, and I thought, I wasn't doing anything except rocking in this chair and eating this Yorkshire pudding. He was getting strip washed and the audience were just spellbound. So there was nothing happening except everything was happening. No dialogue, nothing. And it was unique. I mean, it was just terrific piece of theatre. Yeah. And it worked. We went on tour with it around Europe and in Italy. They were going crazy about it. You could hear the audience talking openly. What's he doing? What's he doing? Why is he doing that? What's happening? He's just getting washed. <laughs> it was wonderful. Wonderful. And look, I've, I've interviewed a, a lot of actors and, and I have to say, even some whose careers I've looked at and gone, oh my God, that's, a, that's an amazing career. There's, there's a lot of, when I get to the end of these interviews, there's a, a, a lot and it often surprises me of, of sort of um, disappointment. And yet I, I look at you and you're still working. You, you seem to have never stopped. Has there ever been, so, so I guess it's a couple of questions. Has there ever been a time when you've looked around and gone, God, why am I still doing this or, or, or will I eat next week? Uh, I've got to do something else. And, and secondly, you know, what's, what's the secret? Because you have, a, you have a CV that I think anyone would envy, but it's one that, as I say, a lot of people I speak to may have a good career in the 60s and 70s and it tapers off or the 70s and 80s as it tapers off. And you, you know, still going strong uh, and have maintained that career. So what, yeah, what's the secret? And was there ever a time when it could have, it could have stopped? Um, the secret is, is never, uh, always be curious, always, as I say, as I said earlier, never shut any doors to anything, always keep an open mind, have a go at anything. Uh, if it doesn't work, it doesn't work, you can, but I, uh, you know, I live in Lincolnshire, mainly because it's cheap housing, and I can work because I work around the farms and, uh, you know, I've got, I've had a heavy goods license, I've had a forklift license and I've you know, three children and a mortgage. You've got to keep working. If you're in somewhere like London and, uh, you know, suddenly this virus, for instance, I, I just feel so sorry about for all the people who suddenly have no way of making a living. And, uh, the thing about Lincolnshire, if you don't mind what you do, there's plenty of work. So I've worked with lots and lots of different people. You've got to get on with lots of different people. And I think that's the clue about you're only as good as your next job. You'll never become anybody. You're just a working actor. And the next job is like, you know, a carpenter building the next cabinet. You've got to make it as best as you can because that will stand you in good stead for your next job. So you never stop and say, well, that's it, that's a perfect cabinet. Because it's never perfect, it's almost perfect. Or a bit, you could do that bit better, I'll do that a bit. And it's the same with acting. Never feel that you, you, you stood anywhere or that you know any better than anybody else, that you always learn. And as so long as you're learning and discovering, the business is always refreshing and open and interesting and you're curious about things. And I love doing new plays. I find them exciting and you're 
because you've got to make a commitment to somebody who's written the thing and that's very very important they're more they've had they've, they've put their guts into something you've got to try and make it work for them because it's very very important so i've done a lot of new plays uh, and they're a joy and to so you're giving back all the time you're putting in you're putting in you're not sitting back thinking oh now i can do this now i can do that you can't you've got to keep working and keep discovering and keep keep an interest especially with younger actors keep them buzzing keep them i've worked a lot with mark rylance and mark rylance is wonderful as a company member he's a big big star he's he's got oscars but he's a company member it's important to him that you work the play together as a unit and that everybody works and is happy working and it's a joy to work with because again you're all in it together he may be a big star and he may be getting you know all the plaudits and everything but he he knows that he needs everybody in that play to be at the best to do the job properly and he's a great leader well, that sounds like the perfect way of going about it. Well, look, um, uh, I'm very grateful to you for your time. Uh, you've 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 given it for for free. So what I what I ask is that the, the one small thing we can do is for the people listening and or watching this. Would you like to plug a charity or a cause that if people have uh, any uh, spare uh, uh, pennies, they can uh, siphon off in that direction in lieu of payment for your time? My wife died over a year ago, and she was a mainstay of my life. She gave me the opportunity to do what I've done. Uh, and it was hard because she had cancer and we knew she was going to die. And what got me through? were the Macmillan nurses. So I would say, if you can give anything, give it to the Macmillan nurses. Because they were brilliant. Thank you, Edward. And that's, that's not the first time I've heard that tale. And, uh, and yeah, thanks for sharing that. And, and I, will put a, I will put a little, uh, a little link uh, on the video and in the audio so that people know where to go. So thank you for that. Um, okay. And how's and, and we we're recording this in lockdown, but you're doing okay because you're by the sea. Yes. Oh yes. So enjoy. And those. I walk the worlds. Yeah. Which are lovely. Well, we hope. I hope it's not too long before we're all out again doing stuff. And I'm sure that if stuff is being made, they'll be having Edward Peel in it because that seems to have been well. The let's hope so. For the past sixty-seven was your first telly. So what's that? That's six. Seven, eight. 50 yeah, I started working 66. So it's, uh, what is it? 44 years ago? Or is it 54 years ago? It's uh, 54. 54 years ago. Oh, crikey, yes. That's a career. <laughs> <laughs> ha Sincere thanks to Edward Peel, who was talking to me, Toby Haydoke. Edward's charity is Macmillan Nurses macmillan.org.uk 
He gave his time for free, and of course, you don't pay for podcasts. So if you do have any spare pennies that you could donate to an excellent cause, that would be very much appreciated. Thanks also for setting up this interview to Edward's son, Benjamin Peel. The music for this podcast is by Wayne Shepherd, and this is part of Toby Haydock's Time Travels. Thanks so much for listening. Hello, I'm Toby Haydock, comedian and professional anorak. To bring some joy to lockdown, I thought what the world really needed was yet another Doctor Who podcast. So I came up with four happy times and places, a positive Doctor Who commentary packed with facts and the favourite things of a special guest, indefinable magic, whimsical essays based on some arcane aspect of the show, part QI, part thought for the day, no two episodes are ever quite the same, too much information, unhealthily detailed blow-by-blow accounts of the making of every single episode far too much information, all the stuff too obscure to fit into the last one, only for the certifiable and for patrons, a guy's got to eat. They're all under the umbrella title, Toby Haydock's Time Travels. Go on, come with me.